Hi, this is Marty Strong, retired Navy SEAL and author, joining you with Robert Miller on the Follow Your Dream podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Howard Kaplan, the author of six novels, including Damascus Cover, which was made into a major motion picture starring Jonathan Rhys-Meyer and Sir John Hurt in his last performance. His newest novel is called The Syrian Sunset, about the Syrian civil war and ultimately how this led to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Oh, and he was also once interrogated by the KGB for days before being expelled from the USSR. How's that for an interesting guy? And as you know, in every episode of this podcast, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Out of Tahini from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, I chose it because Howard has traveled extensively through Israel and the Middle East, where, of course, they eat tahini. So I thought it worked. So, Howard Kaplan, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thanks so much. Here I am. All right. So, you're you're a great author, and you've had a film made from one of your novels. Now, that's pretty hard to do. I know there's a lot of authors, they get their films, you know, optioned, but you actually got it made. Give us the background. How did that happen? Well, like a lot of great things, it both was a fluke and started with a woman. Although not a woman that I knew intimately, a friend of mine had read the Damascus cover years before, was sitting on her shelf, and a director friend of hers came to her and said, he'd like to do a Middle East picture. I don't know what exactly he had in mind. And she still had the hardcover on her shelf. She pulled it down, said, read this. He read it. He met me at Pete's Coffee in Los Angeles with contracts. He wanted to do a deal. And I read them over and I signed them right there because I figured this was an older book. Nobody else was banging on my door. I may as well try to squeak through. Was he an independent? Was he with a major film company? He's a small director. He'd made one film before a horror film in the Philippines, and he was looking for a project to try to ignite his own career. So he wanted a book that gave him a little bit of gravitas, something a little more serious. And what I tell people is, anybody can make a film if they can raise the money. Because actors, directors, producers, they'll all work if you can sign the paycheck. It's not any big secret. So the the 
task always is to try to raise the money. And it actually took him 10 years. Okay, so let me understand this. Some woman pulls your book off the shelf, sends it to a guy who then has you out for coffee. You sign a contract. He doesn't have the money. He's only done one film. Takes him 10 years to raise the money? Correct. Luckily, I'm a patient guy. My father lived to 103, lucidly, till the last few months. And, you know, suddenly he called one day and said he has the money raised. All right, wait, wait, wait. For 10 years, was he in touch with you or you just forgot about him? Or no, what? no, no, no. I didn't tell anybody because the way the contract was written, it's pretty standard for films. You mentioned it yourself in your intro. They option the rights. And usually those are for a year and allows them to re-up on their discretion for a second year. There's, you know, prescribed payment in it. If he wants the second year, I can't say no. But after the second year, the option's null and void, and I keep whatever small amounts of money he's given me. We met once a year for another nine years at the same coffee house, each, <laughs> which, is, which closed during the pandemic, unfortunately. It was a big place. I guess they couldn't, Pete's Coffee, they couldn't uh, survive. And he said, I think I can do this. And I want another year. And this went on for, we met once a year. We didn't speak the entire year. I would get an email from him a week before the, the expiration of the agreement saying, I'd like to have another year. And then, because ultimately I'm kind of a nice guy and I was only interested in uh, getting the film done. By the end, he was paying me $100 a year. Did he also pay for the coffee? That's what I want to know. Yes, he bought the coffee. All right. Uh, and cookies, whatever I wanted. But the the dilemma was for him, he got the deal done and he had the actors in June of 2015, I believe it was. And he was going to start shooting in October. Now, what year in the 10 years was the 2015 year? This was year 10. Okay. It was year 10. But the contract expired in July. <laughs> so he, that was the one year. So he needed to renew it again. So some of my screenwriter friends said, you could ask him for whatever you want because he can't make the film in October if he doesn't renegotiate the rights. So you know what I sold it to him for in year 10? Hold on, $20 million. $100. <laughs> because I felt this guy had put his nose to the grindstone. He'd worked so hard to get the Damascus cover made. He stuck to it for 10 years. Now he had Sir John Hurt and Jonathan Reese Myers. Why should I try to, there was a pickup amount that I would get once they start filming, but why should I try to squeeze a few extra thousand dollars out of him? I don't do things that way. I can totally understand what you did. But what was this guy doing for 10 years? He had different options. For example, at one point, he had a deal in Malta. Because a lot of these countries give tax rebates to film productions because they want the tourist business that later accrues when it shows the film was made in all these plights. In fact, it was a kind of an interesting dilemma there's a scene, 
uh, I won't say where it is, but where the main spy wants to make sure he's not followed. So he jumps off a train to make sure that nobody's following him. So he says to me, we've got a problem in Malta. There are no trains. <laughs> it's an island country and there are no trains. In the end, they shot it in Morocco. Morocco also has a good infrastructure for film. A lot of even films like Babel, the old uh, Brad Pitt movie was shot. Almost everything that looks Middle Eastern is shot in Morocco because it's a big country and they give rebates and they have their own film industry. But they had to kill the train scene, which is in the book because it was too expensive because this was still a lower budget film. Oh, man, what a crazy story. So let me ask this. Did you write the screenplay or did he write the screenplay? He wrote the screenplay. I think he made a few errors. What is his name, by the way? We haven't mentioned that yet. Daniel Burke. He he became the producer, the director, and the screenwriter. So this was his baby, but he deserves inordinate credit for getting, you know, as you said in the very beginning, getting a picture made is nearly impossible. It was briefly in the theaters, then it was in Hulu, then it was on Stars, and now it's on Tubi, which is one of those free streaming services with commercials. So you can't get it on Amazon Prime or Netflix? No, but you can rent it for like $3.99 on Amazon or see it for free on Tubi. Well, I don't even know what 2B is, but I got to tell you, after this, I have to rent this movie, okay? <laughs> you know, you at least got one rental out of this entire experience. Uh, goes to the film production, not to me. I only get money if you buy the book. Explain this to me. Okay, so 2015, he says, I've got the money. How much money was it, by the way, that he raised? Uh, $5 million. And he raised this from a... Uh, person of clear mind <laughs> a number of people through it was actually a british production they got the money out of great britain because britain also has tax credits so this is why uh jonathan reese myers is irish sir john hurt obviously is british so they needed an all eu cast and they had to get permission to hire olivia thurlby who's an American actress to play an American photographer uh, character in the book and in the film. And it was shot in Morocco as a British production. And that's how it happened. I like all this underneath stuff. Okay. Cause you know, as a consuming public, all you see is the film when it's finished on the screen. Correct. You don't get the underneath stuff. So I love all that little detail that you're talking about here. All right. So the film gets made. When did it actually come out? Let me just tell you one. You made me think of something. So let me tell you one Sir John Hurt story. Um, the film came out in 2017, but Hurt had uh, terminal cancer. And even when he shot in Morocco, we didn't know he was dying of cancer. So they do something called ADRs, which are additional dialogue replacement. In other words, any of the dialogue that gets garbled while shooting or that doesn't come out clearly, the actors go in the studio and they re-record those lines. So John Hurt, the film was being edited in London because as I said, it was a British production. And John Hurt was in the hospital. He checks himself out of the hospital 
and comes to the audio recording studio to do his ADRs, the additional dialogue. However, when they went to match them with his voice in the film, they couldn't use the ADRs because his voice had become so gravelly through the impending death of cancer that the two didn't match. So they went with the lines that were originally shot in Casablanca. But the fortitude of this legend of an actor, you know, Elephant Man, 1984, you know, all these enormously huge films and a lot of smaller films he made too, that he checked himself out of the hospital to do extra dialogue for our smallish picture. Yeah, quite remarkable. And the fact that he or the, I should say, the director was able to get him to take the, the part. I assume he kind of knew at that time that he was in trouble medically. But it, it's quite a coup that he signed up for the picture, isn't it? I think so. He had done a similar role in Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy in the Gary Oldman picture. And he kind of liked doing it. And I'll even give you more color on how the world works. He has a house in Morocco. And he wanted to go see his house. Now, he is not the major character. Jonathan Rhys Myers is. And they never shoot a film in consecutive order. They shoot a film in what's best for all the locales in one place. They'll shoot. If they have to bring in extra actors, you know, they'll shoot all their scenes consecutively. So he went and told the director, I'll be there on a Sunday for wardrobe. You can start shooting on Monday. And Friday at five o'clock, I go to my house on the train. And I'm leaving, so you better be done with me. And it happened. They were finished with him, and he went on the train to wherever his house was. Fantastic. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth. And I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads, ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience. And of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician, with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode. And the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, 
please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. All right. Listen, I congratulate you that you waited 10 years for this guy to come back and tell you that he has the money. At least you got 10 years worth of coffee out of this, okay? <laughs> and maybe a little bit more than that. The film sounds fascinating. So I definitely am going to encourage all my listeners out there in those 200 countries, go take a listen on that film. Watch that film. All right, let's go on to your new book, because you've got this whole thing still going on with the, the Middle East. So tell us about the Syrian book that's your new one. Right. The new book is called The Syrian Sunset. I had a grave feeling throughout my entire life that I wanted to be involved in causes, that I wanted to do things that would help people. And I was very moved by the plight of the Syrian people in the Civil War and in the Arab Spring, which began in 2011. So I went in and I started to research. I'd been to Damascus once before to write the Damascus cover, the film, the novel that was filmed. And I started looking at the tragedy of what had happened. And then I ended up doing something inadvertently that worked out. And I think it worked out better because it was inadvertent. I created some funny characters. One of them is a Russian oligarch. How do I do research? I'm divorced with a 30-year-old son. And I talked to a woman from Moscow on a dating app. And I said, what's happening in Moscow that an oligarch might be doing? They said, they're taking the old movie theaters and turning them into entertainment centers, meaning with ice skating rinks, beauty salons, shops, movie theaters, video arcades. You know, Russia's big. They have a lot of room. So I created this oligarch who's involved in the film industry as one of the characters, you know, for the novel. And then originally I thought they needed to blackmail him, but I thought every time I see a blackmail scene in a movie or a, a book, I start thinking this is so unrealistic. So I made them kind of wary friends, you know, that kind of help each other when necessary. And he starts saying, because he's an oligarch, if you remember that Tom Hanks film, Castaway, uh, where he ends up on, you know, the desert, excuse me, on the island right. for years. With the soccer ball. Yes, with the soccer ball. Wilson, the, the very famous scene, you know, Wilson for Wilson balls. But if you recall, which people remember sometimes less, how does the film open? What is Tom Hanks doing? in the beginning of Castaway, he's working at FedEx in Moscow. And the plane that goes down is the FedEx flight, because if you recall too, he saves one package. And at the end of the film, he delivers it, a FedEx package. Yes, I remember that. So I have this Russian oligarch, it just somehow came to me. Instead of blackmailing him, he starts talking to these American CIA agents and he says, you're an intelligent guy. I don't believe that the great Tom Hanks would work at FedEx. I believe that he would be Private Ryan and saving people from World War II. But FedEx, this is below the great Tom Hanks to play. 
So it becomes a running gag through the whole novel about Tom Hanks. And the oligarch says, when you make a movie out of our exciting story, meaning the story of the novel, I want Tom Hanks to play me. So I want to get somebody to approach Tom Hanks to see if he'll actually do it. But the novel at the same time is quite serious. It's about how the West allowed Bashar al-Assad freedom. If you recall, it was during the Obama administration. Obama said- He had the red line. Exactly. We're going to draw a red line. Thank you. You have it exactly right. And exactly a year later, Assad crossed the red line. He dropped sarin on East Damascus, and he killed a thousand people. And nothing happened. And nothing happened. And that allowed Putin, who was coming into Russia, excuse me, into Syria in a big way, building naval bases. Syria borders the Mediterranean, north of Lebanon. He built a big naval base. He had and he expanded it. He built a great military airfield. And he said he was going to bomb ISIS, which he did do. But he also bombed the Syrian Free Army and broke their backs so that Assad stayed in power. So part of the conclusion of the Syrian sunset, and what it is, is it's a historical novel. So all the events in the novel take place are accurate, they happen, but all the characters are fictional. So I've made up characters like this oligarch and other Mossad agent, the CIA agent, the head of military intelligence for Uh, Syria, who is the main character, who can be a little brutal, but he will uh, cooperate with foreign intelligence services to try to help his own people because he has a greater responsibility towards the Syrian people than towards the government. And Putin comes to the conclusion, in reality, it was a cakewalk in Syria. They didn't do anything. So why shouldn't I go into Ukraine? They're not going to do anything there either. Now, in reality, we have stepped up in Ukraine. We were a little slow initially to arm them, but we have, and so has the world. A lot of the NATO countries are starting to send jets. So Putin somewhat miscalculated, but we had a chance. Part of our problem historically was, and why nobody did anything to save Syria, and Obama wanted a coalition. He's a coalition guy. He wanted Britain in. Britain wanted to come in. But Cameron's, David Cameron's party, 13 members of his party crossed party lines and voted against intervention because they said Tony Blair followed Bush into Iraq. It was a disaster. And we're not going to do that again. So in a sense, we fought the wrong war. We went into Iraq when we shouldn't have. And we didn't go into Syria where we could have gone in just with cruise missiles and taken out all the airfields and helicopter gunships that were dropping these fertilizer barrel bombs on civilian areas. And instead, we did nothing. And Bashar al-Assad is still in power. And the other Arab countries are forced to reopen relations with him because Jordan needs the trade routes to the Gulf. Jordan is south of Syria. And it's already almost 10 years, or more than 10 years, since the Syrian civil war. And the reality is you have to deal with Assad because he's there. It is a ridiculously sad situation that that man has persisted in power 
after all the, the, the atrocities that he's done to his own people. And it always struck me as hard to understand his background. If I remember correctly, he was a professional, wasn't he? He was an ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist, that was it. And somehow he crossed the line into pure evil. I'll tell you a little bit what happened. And there's a parallel between Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. Both are second sons, where their elder brothers were favored by the father. In the case of Netanyahu, and then I'll get to Assad, his older brother, Yoni Netanyahu, was the leader of the commando raid on Entebbe to rescue the hostages from a hijacking. I forget the year, I think it was in the 1980s. And he was the only casualty of this Israeli successful operation into Entebbe. And he was shot because he led the assault from the front, not from the rear, as Israeli commanders often do. Assad, who you were right, was an ophthalmologist in London. He had an older brother who was the heir apparent. The father had been, Hafez al-Assad had been uh, a tyrannical dictator. And the son, Bassem is his name, was an equestrian, a bon vivant, fast cars, lots of women, head of the security services. He drives, I forget the year, I think it's in the 1990s, to Damascus Airport in order to go skiing in the Alps, in the fog. He's too manly to wear a seatbelt. He's too manly to slow down. He plows into a barrier and dies. So now we have Bashar al-Assad, who never even entered the Syrian army, who's living in London as an ophthalmologist. And he told Vogue magazine, because he has a looker wife who gets interviewed, Asma, for magazines, that he chose ophthalmology. And I put this in the novel because I thought it was unbelievable because he can't stand the sight of blood. So they brought him back from London, quickly made him a colonel in the army, set him into some unit. So what you have in both these countries, but let's stay with Syria, is a second son who's trying to prove himself all the time to a dead father who favored his older brother. And he went from obscurity into utter brutality. And I've often told people, I think that if you would have had the bon vivant brother alive, he might have had the strength to compromise rather than mass slaughter everybody. But it's the weaker son, the frightened son, the, the son who doesn't, you know, who sits alone in the dark running the country. And he's frightened of the military elite around him, you know, who could throw a coup. So he becomes this absolutely heartless, brutal human being. So the novel uh, details these events, some of the prisons, uh, what they're like in Syria. And at the same time, it's, you know, often funny. As I say, what I meant to say earlier, what I started to say was, I didn't intend to make it funny as a balance. And I think if I would have intended that, 
it might not have come off that well. It was more, I just created a couple of these characters who were a little bit funny and I thought, well, this will work. And it's, the reviewers are kind so far and they seem to have liked the balance. So it becomes an enjoyable book to read, even though it's about a very tough subject. Well, it sounds to me like the Syrian sunset would also turn into a fantastic movie. It's so relevant to what's happening and this underneath story that you've just described. I always found it to be unbelievable that a man that it took, I assume, a Hippocratic oath to do no harm, to help people as an ophthalmologist, I knew he was a professional, could turn into someone that is pure evil the way that he did. And that alone provides, you know, fodder for books and movies. So listen, I think it's wonderful that you have covered this situation in Syria as you have. The fact that you had Damascus cover made, quite remarkable. I commend you for it. I hope that Syrian Sunset will be as successful. Call up that director. Let him option this one. Get a couple of hundred dollars and a few more coffees out of it, would you please? I'm talking to a few other people, but we're hopeful that somebody will step up. All right. We have been speaking here with Howard Kaplan. Howard, it's been a pleasure and a remarkable experience to hear you talk about all of this. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really been enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We're going to listen now to the song that started out the podcast. It's my song called Out of Tahini. I want to thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.